Lord's Prayer until you've been baptised. It was so special. It was a way of respecting the insights inside that. So here we have, in the first century, we had little Christian communities dotted around the place and being accused to the Romans by the Jews of being a, a seedbed of trouble. They worship a king, they said. They want to change the world, they said. And so Trajan, the emperor, sent, to one, sent out to the governors, I want you to investigate what these Christians get up to behind closed doors. So uh, Trini, uh, Pliny set up this um, investigation and he interviewed them. He, he got some Christians and interviewed them under the threat of death. It was really quite serious. And all he found was this. And this is the report that he sent back to the emperor and we have copies of it today. They affirm that when they, they, what is their guilt? They're in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light, when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as God and bound themselves by a solemn oath not to any wicked deeds and never to, not, never to commit any fraud, theft, adultery, never to falsify their word. They were exemplary citizens in all but the worship of the emperor. And it's interesting how, just that little middle phrase, when these Christians were interrogated, they say, we just sing a hymn to Christ as God. Well, let's look then at the hymn that we've chosen for tonight. Philippians 2, 6 to 7. Uh, 6 to 11. So if you'd like to turn in that. It isn't always the case, but usually in modern uh, prints, uh, print runs, that when there is uh, a structure which looks like a poem or a hymn, it's set out differently. And here it is, if you look. If you've got the uh, second edition of the NIV, which is the, the, the Church Bible, you can see. So it starts in verse uh, 5. Paul writes to the Christians at Philippi. And he says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then begins the hymn. Who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. And therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the hymn he found, and it's set out like that. If we set it out um, slightly more reflecting the Greek structure of it, that's what it looks like. There are six... Um, if you like, um, little verses, really. Now, can you spot where Paul, he was very happy to use this, but he felt he didn't, wasn't, didn't say quite enough at one point, so he, he inserted just a little text. The lines almost give it away. If you just count your way through it, you'll see. That's right, Yes. If you take out even death on a cross, it's, it beautifully, it's got a beautiful meter to it in the Greek. But this has been slipped in because Paul just wanted to press it that bit further. 
So that's the hymn as we have it translated NIV. Now, I'm going to cheat because there are just one or two things I'd like to draw out which, which, are, which are hidden below the English in the Greek. And so um, they will appear now in red. Amazing how you can just do that. And, oh, it happens like that. If only translation were that easy. The first one is this. It's that phrase. In the NIV, it, it says, um, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Well, I think that's a paraphrase that, of what it is. But the actual Greek says, he didn't count equality with God as something to be grasped. And the picture in the Greek is that there is Jesus in heaven with his father. All the attributes of the Godhead are his. They're just there. But he did not grasp and hold on to them. He was willing, for the moment, to let them be to lay them aside, to leave them there. And it's that grasping nature that the Greek verb has. And why is that important? Well, anybody got a suggestion? Where, what does that grasping suggest or remind you of? Who wanted to grasp the attributes of the Godhead? No, but I say I understand the answer. But you, no, it's in the text in the, in the Bible. Okay, thank you. You're working. That, that's that's fine. I mean, it's time of night. Um, it was Adam in the garden. If you just eat of the fruit of this tree. You will be able to know, just like God knows. Remember? And that's why I think that the, the, having the, the Greek that bit brought to the surface, we see that little parallel, and we'll come back to that, uh, because Adam, the contrast here is Jesus and Adam. Adam wanted that. Jesus gave it away. Um. And then the next phrase, <coughs> he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Well, I think I would say he made himself nothing is, is closer to what it is, but the, the actual Greek word is, is emptied himself. Uh, and, the, and the picture is of, Je of Jesus, as it were, emptying himself of all that goes with being God in terms of his activity. Uh, so that he can now live as a human being. It's the, the picture here in this song is that Jesus chose to lay aside all the kind of attributes he could have exercised as God in order to live as a human person. So he gave up foreknowledge. He put it on one side. And so he learned, as we said in Hebrews, and we looked at it, he learned like you and I would learn through studying the scriptures, debating with people in the temple. He, he waited to be anointed by the Spirit before he could do powerful ministry. He genuinely gave this away. He emptied himself in order that he might come down to us. And so that, that again is conveyed by the actual word, emptying himself. And when we come back in a moment, we will see that it was that word, 
which got Paul thinking, let's put this in, this hymn now. Because the Philippians are being asked to have this mind about how you treat each other that we see in Jesus. And what was Jesus' mind? He was willing to empty himself for the sake of others. That was the model before us. Um, I think the others are fairly clear. The, the, the slave is nearer to what it was, the contrast between slave and God. Um, then, at the name of Jesus, every knee should kneel, I think. It does actually say in the English translations, which started with the King James Version, every knee shall bow. And we sing that, don't we, gaily? But I, I haven't seen a bow, bowing knee yet. I don't know how a knee would bow. But anyway, that's, just, I mean, that's slightly fun, really. Um, now, here's the, here's, the, here's the trick question. That, all right. Some of you are trying to work out what to do with your knees now. Um, at the name of Jesus, every knee should kneel in heaven and on earth and under the earth. At the name of Jesus. He was given a name above every name. What is the name that Jesus was given? Yeah. Yes. And that too. No, you're doing all right, but yeah, not quite. But you're doing great stuff. <laughs> what was the the new name he was given that he hadn't got already? No, he actually described himself as son of man. Can I say? I think it, I admire the people here who had a go. Don't you? Yeah, I know you're thinking. They'd all think I'm silly if I suggested. Well, we will, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> the answer's in the text. Thank you. The new name is Lord. Yeah, of course, yes. Look, it's there. Every knee shall kneel in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, when he was raised and ascended, became the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul, when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, said Lord, the first word out of his lips after being blinded was Lord. He recognized who it was. He knew he was persecuting the Christians. At that point, Jesus is given all the things that he had not grasped at the beginning. Do you see the symmetry in the song? Jesus laid all this aside, um, like some of our hymns. It's the Graham Kendrick song in Servant King. Laid all this aside and came down to die on the cross for us. And then the, his father raised him to the highest and gave him what he'd never grabbed for himself in the first place. Well, now you can see this if we lay this out as a story. Sorry, is that all right? There's some, that's okay so far, is it? We just warm me up, you know. <laughs> right. If we move to the next slide, what you can see is we can set this out as six scenes in this story, six stages, if you like. So it begins, as we just did, with where Jesus is in the nature of God and doesn't, consider equality of God as something to be held on to, grasped and held on to. So what he does, he empties himself, he becomes a slave 
born as a human being. Then being found as a man, he humbled himself sufficient even to die and even a death on a cross. Wherefore, or therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name, the name of Jesus, every knee shall kneel in heaven and earth. Those are the six stages. Now, do you see what's going on? If we trace it, you've got it in the handout, so it won't be a surprise. Perhaps I should have given the handout at the end. Um, but this is what happens if you look at it. So we start here. Jesus steps down from heaven to being a slave, from being God to being a slave, being law, being slave, and becomes human. And then he becomes so human, he steps down again, even to the point of death. And for a Jew, even worse, he steps down again to death on the cross. And at that stage, what Jesus has done, he has trusted his father completely. Jesus didn't rise from the dead because he wasn't able to do that. Jesus was raised from the dead. His father brought him back to life. And so God there exalts him like that. So what we've got, if you look, look along, you've got the beginning, the step down, 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 and then up. Given the new name, he's the Jesus the Lord who's raised, risen, ascended. Yeah? Well, so far, is that okay? I mean, that's what we, that's, most of us think that, don't we? That all makes, it's familiar, would you not say? Well, now let's see what Paul's done, which is special. I wonder if you, know, if you notice this. This was Paul's, one of Paul's contributions. There are two particular ones that stand out. There is not in the Gospels. What happened to Jesus before he was born is not in the Gospels. The nearest we've got is John in his prologue, and we think of John next week. But the story starts with Jesus coming. Paul said, look, if having worked it, I mean, he was a theologian. He was, as I say, he was looking for patterns and how things hung together. If Jesus was God then, you can't not be God earlier. So therefore, he must have been God before he came. Logical, isn't it? So, how does that work? We'll look at it in a minute. And the second thing he did, this is not in the Gospels either. Jesus, what happened to Jesus after he was raised from the, from, from, uh, from the dead and ascended to heaven, Paul goes on a bit further and discovers more. So what Paul does, he extends our understanding of Jesus, both before and after. He says not only Jesus was the Messiah who, raised, who died on the cross and raised again, the Son of God who uh, opened a way to heaven, he was there in the very beginning, before he ever showed up on earth. And similarly, when he got up there, it wasn't just that he was raised and his father said, I've accepted your sacrifice. Now the, 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 it is all finished. Jesus has another job now. He is there and he's, got, he's exercising this name. And, and the exercise of the name, that, that's the lordship he has, means that the whole of the creation, that's heaven, the earth, and under the earth, that's how they thought of it in the first century, um, will come and, and acknowledge that he is the Lord. Paul developed 
the inside that Jesus is Lord and saw that actually inside that simple truth is the fact that that must mean he's, he's the Lord now. So those are the thoughts he had. So then, uh, uh, as theologians do, he then went off and started studying the Bible to say, well, is there some clue there that can help us? Well, let's look at the pre-existence one. Paul had got as far as working out that Jesus is divine, the same as the Father is divine. So where in the Old Testament can we find ways of imagining how the Father and the Son are related? That was his task now. So prayerfully, he went uh, looking around. And here are three things he found. He found sonship. You know, in, in the Psalms, how, uh, it was picked up in Hebrews, wasn't it? How Jesus is the Son, higher than even the angels. Wisdom. In, in Proverbs, there's the thought that wisdom... Uh, was there at the very beginning and helped God in the creation of things. And Adam, as we've just heard. So Paul is thinking, how does the Lord this hang together? He prays about it, he thinks about it. And he think, and this is his conclusion. This is how it hangs together. Sonship, Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, so that, that relates. Wisdom, wisdom is the creator of all things. Therefore, that must mean Jesus is God's wisdom. And therefore, Jesus is the creator of all things. And Adam, well now, when God created Adam, do you remember in the Genesis narrative, how is it described? They were created in the image of God, the likeness of God. They were meant to be representative of what is in the character of God. They were meant to reflect what God is really like, the image of God, and they were a copy Adam and Eve were a copy of the image. And it's interesting, it's in the plural, if you go there. It isn't that men are in the image of God and women are not. Let us make them, says the Hebrew, in, the, in our image. So the image of God, Paul worked out, well, who was the image of God then? It was Jesus. Jesus is the image of God and Adam was a copy of Jesus. Adam and Eve together. Humanity. Is this racing a bit too much? Is that all right? Okay. So how does this come together? Well, there are two ways. You can either do it in a song, like we're looking tonight, or you can turn over just to Colossians for a moment and see how Paul sums it up there. Colossians 1, 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Chapter 1, oh sorry, it's page 1183. These letters, they, they jump about, don't they? You close your Bible and you open them, they've gone. <laughs> or they've moved. <laughs> 1183. So here's Paul doing it in a technical way. Um, the Son... 115 of Colossians is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of over all creation. He's over creation. In him, all things were created. Jesus is the wisdom who creates things in heaven and earth, visible, invisible, thrones and powers and so on. All things have been created through him and for him. He is therefore before all things and in him all things hold together. We'll see that theme comes back in John as well. That Jesus not... 
we, we sometimes have a mechanical view of creation, that um, God set it up and then stood back and it all chonks along without him. Do you know? And, and, and the, the models of scientific progress, evolution is the most well-known probably, uh, assume that the world's just doing it itself. But what Paul is saying is Jesus brings into, into being the world we know and then sustains it. And I was trying to find a metaphor to help when I was teaching uh, theology, so I'll try it out on you, why not? Um, I want you to imagine a wall, and I want you to imagine somebody on the other side is a juggler with three balls, you know, doing this, this sort of routine. Now, you're the other side of the wall. You can't see the juggler. You can only see the balls and the patterns they go. So you can say, isn't that a lovely pattern? And if you're a scientist, you'll map it, you'll get the height, the speed, and, and you'll work out that there's a regular repeating pattern here. And you may even be brave enough to say, well, there you are. There's a, physics, a law of physics. You may or may not. And you see this going on and going on. It's just wonderful. And then the juggler changes the juggle. He either adds another, a fourth ball, or just stops. Either way, the pattern you've seen has changed. And if the juggler stops, the balls just fall to the ground and there's no, nothing to see the other side of the wall. And I think that's my metaphor for how the Lord sustains, keep, keeps in being the created order. The Lord does it like that all the time. And in um, the moment, in this, let's say this particular moment now, the Lord's juggling as he's always juggled. Metaphor, and sometimes. And so you've got this regular repeating pattern, and science builds these great models. Because the Lord is the juggler, it means that at any time he can change the pattern. He's not into, you know, there used to be this argument that God can't intervene and break the laws of nature. The laws of nature are only a description of what we've seen so far. What actually happens is that if the Lord wants to do something different, he just weaves it in and he does it. So there you are. He hasn't broken anything. He's just sustained it in a different way. So the Lord is still doing that. So if there's a miracle that pops up, he says, I'll have a miracle here. He weaves a miracle into the pattern. And people say, oh, that's strange. I've never seen one of those before. And no, you haven't. So here we've got Jesus is not only... the the one who calls into existence the world as we know it. He's the one who keeps it going. But because it's behind the scenes and because our eyes of faith are dim and sometimes just blind, we don't appreciate that. We, we look on the surface and we say, oh yes, it seems that everything just ticks along uh, and it keeps doing the same, so therefore it must be some autonomous world doing its own thing. How's that? Right, we'll take a pause there. If, if you have any questions on that, I just thought I'd like to see if that metaphor works for you. Okay, well, let's, so resuming the story, what has, um, what has Paul done then with this here? He said, Jesus is the image of God who br brings into creation, brings things into being, into creation. And then going on, he's the beginning and the first one from the dead, so in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness in him, through him to reconcile all things, in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That's Paul's 
summary of who Jesus is. The song just tells the story of, of somebody in heaven saying to his father, Lord, I'll put all that on one side to go and help. And the father says, thank you. And he does that for us. So what we've then got, Jesus emptied himself so he could take on genuine humanity, live genuinely a genuinely human life. Because, if you think about it, the way the death on the cross works, if Jesus had been a perfect man, his perfect life would have only atoned if atonement was needed for himself. That You can't extend anything like that. But there's a corporate nature to reality. Adam is not simply an individual, and we can debate that another night, um, but he's certainly in Scripture a representative, inclusive way of talking about humanity. And so what... Because Jesus took on genuine humanity and because Jesus himself, as the Son of God, died on the cross, the death there works for everybody in this inclusive humanity who are in Christ. And so Paul says, this is the brilliant news. As in Adam all die, all in Christ shall be made alive. Jesus has broken open the shackles, which means that every one of us is due to die. We now have a future because he emptied himself for us to live like a human being. The atonement works because Jesus was lived a genuinely human life, but because he was God, the effect of that genuinely human life was multiplied to everybody who wants to, take, to partake. And the gospel is that Jesus has already done it for you. Do you know, I don't, when I started out as a Christian, um, it wasn't me working my way to God. It was God working his way to me and saying, David, will you kindly pay attention? And my saying, I'm not so sure, just for a bit. <laughs> I don't like the idea of discipleship, Lord. It's a bit too constricting, you understand, uh, or whatever it was. So here we've got this extra bit that Paul's worked out is that Jesus emptied himself for you and for me in order that we might live. And I think that's just, well, it's moving. And as we said at the moment ago, Paul includes it now because he wants this to be the model of how people relate to each other in the church. Herodotus, I think it was, one of the early historians, said of the Christians, see how they love one another. That's the hallmark of a work of the Holy Spirit, that people who are different can rise above their differences and love each other, love each other with the differences. It is so easy to love people like yourself, isn't it? Hmm. If this is really a community of the Holy Spirit, we should be loving people who are diametrically opposite to us. I mean, they are good-looking, I suppose, well... And, and that is what stands out. When we uh, um, uh, can, as it were, model in public this new community where all are welcome, whatever you're like, um, when we can say, Lord, I, I really disagree with this guy 100%, but in your name I love him because you love him and you love me, and we together will we'll get along. And I think when the spiritual temperature of a community drops, the factions re regain their hold. And you find that they're a little, just like in 1 Corinthians, it's exactly like that. Remember when Paul was talking about, there are some are Apollos, some are after P Cephas, some are after Paul, and some are after Jesus. They're the really holy ones. <laughs> I only choose an apostle, I choose the Lord. Oh, very good. We, and I think actually for APC, that's a real challenge. We've got so many um, traditions and streams within the church. And, and on the surface, 
um, they complement. But actually, that deeper unity where we can embrace the people that are so different from us only happens when we learn to do what Jesus did, to empty ourselves for the sake of somebody else. That's the way forward. And I think, and, and that's what repentance is, really. It's saying, Lord, we know this is not right. And I'm stuck. I, how do I get on with that perishing whatever it is? Church warden, that's a safe one. Um, Jesus is offering us a way. By the Holy Spirit, I will empty you of the things which you want to hold against that person. If you repent and come to me, if you come closer to me, together we'll do it. So it's gospel. It's good news. And I think that's what we offer. Forgiveness is the gift of the church to the world. You don't get forgiveness anywhere else. It's always about, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. You help somebody out, I owe you one. If a Christian says, I owe you one, they've lost the plot. We don't owe anybody anything. We give, it's a grace gift. We're not bound by others. We are supposed to be... Um, do you know like those weddings where they have all the, the, the glasses and they pour water on the top and it cascades down? That's what we're supposed to be like. A cascading fountain that the grace and the love of God cascades from us to others. Freely, unconditionally. It's just a gift. Yep, well. So that was the first thing Paul worked out. Not bad really, is it? And then the second, if we go to the next bit. That bit, what happens to Jesus who's in heaven? Well, Paul worked this out already. He worked out that Jesus is Lord because that's what the song said and he agreed because he knew the Lord. The Lord had met him and he knew he, the Lord was his Lord. He also knew that Jesus was coming again. Do you, do you know the Aramaic word for that? that? Yeah. The Aramaic word for Jesus comes again or the Lord is coming. Yes. Thank you, John. Well, isn't it great? Thank you for staying awake. I mean, and so, but yeah. Um, Marana Maranatha. Maranatha means the Lord is coming. And the first Christians, it's from the Aramaic, it's from those early Christian communities. And if you look in 1 Corinthians 16, you won't see it, but it's there because it's, it's translated in English. 1 Corinthians 16, 2. If you just look there. Now, if we just whistle across. Twenty-two. Did I say two? Right at the end of one Corinthians, page one one five eight. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. This is what I pray. Come, Lord. Now. Um, don't you want that? Wouldn't it be just great for the Lord to come? Well, he'll come in the time that's appropriate. Um, but that was the, the desire of those first Christians. And, they, and it is the Aramaic expression is Maranatha, come Lord. And it's trans, transliterated in the Greek to just the English there. So what has Paul got? He also realizes that Jesus is Lord reigning means this that Jesus is reigning now. If you'd interviewed a Christian walking down the streets of uh, Jerusalem and you said, what do you really believe? At heart, what's your, 
in one sentence, what do you really, really believe? They would say, Jesus is Lord. That was the first creed ever, which is neat. It's nice and summary. Three words in English, two in the Greek. And then they would say, well, tell us what that means. Okay, this is what it means. Jesus is the Lord who is reigning now. That's what it means. That's the Greek. That's the real meaning of the Greek because the tenses work differently in Greek. There's a continuous present, which means it's going on right now. So what, what, when we say Jesus is Lord, we're not just saying, Jesus, hello, you're Lord. Okay, I'll say Lord from now on. We're actually saying, Jesus, you're the one who is reigning now. And that's the Christian privilege, really, to know that, that Jesus is reigning now. Because now only happens now. It only happens in the present. So if Jesus is reigning now, it means he's reigning now. Yes? It's logical, really. Jesus is reigning now. And in a way, I think the church, that's us today, have forgotten that. We know that Jesus has the future in his hands and we know we can pray to him. But the fact that he's reigning now, that's quite sort of, uh, well, that's electrifying. That could change things. And I think it, that's, that underlies why prayer is important and why listening to the Spirit is important. Because if that is the case, that Jesus is reigning now, that means we can talk to him, we can bring situation to him, and we expect him to make a difference now. Um, I, I don't know about you, but some, some people find prayer hard, especially the answers to prayer, which is why I think it's really great when we have answers to prayer in church on Sundays. What I'd love it is that people come in and, and we spend a fair bit of time um, just hearing what God has done this week and then pray for some others and see how he does and next week we'll, we'll, we'll see. Because that's the community we're in. We have a Lord who's alive, we agree. He listens to our prayers, we agree. But he actually makes a difference. Well, we think we agree because we're Western and we've grown up in this kind of um, secular mindset that the world and the private sphere of faith are two side-by-side -side realities. And the private sphere of faith, that's in your heart, it's all the soft stuff, um, uh, is okay for you, but in the hard, real world, this is how it works, sunshine. And it isn't like that. That division of reality, the sacred and the secular, is, it's, it's European, it's Western European, and it came about in the 17th century and it's been developing ever since. It is not endemic. You don't find it. When, when you go to Africa, they're, they're not troubled about whether there's a god or not. Shucks. They know there are gods. There are gods all over the place in Africa, and they know them. And some of them are frightened of them, seriously, really frightened. And, they, and, and when the gospel is preached, they think it's wonderful. I even see that in children today. I don't know about you. When I meet five-year-olds or six-year-olds and I talk about Jesus doing this, they find it easier to take that in than their parents who say, oh, well, yeah, right. Mm, I suppose he might have done. I probably didn't. We socialize people into this sacred secular thing. In Scripture, the picture is that the whole of reality is opened to the Lord who's Lord. And we can pray for every aspect of it. There's no no-go area. And this is what um, Jesus' law really means. And also, that means looking to the future, there'll be a time when that's publicly known. So Paul draws his thoughts together about who Jesus is. For me, he says, to live is Christ, but do you know, it's even better to die. Why? 
because I'm going to go be with him. I'm going home. That's why. This world, you know, you know the words of the, the choruses. This world is not my home. Wasn't the, the, some of the spirituals. We know that with our heads. But actually, we put so much importance on it, you'd think it was, wouldn't you? Now, I'm not looking at uh, Rita who's just moved into another house. Uh, so that's, that's not <laughs> nothing about the possessions we have. But it is about the fact, where is your home? Paul is saying, my home is in heaven with the Lord, where he's already reigning. And I just can't wait to get there. That's what Paul's saying. And that's why that extension of that end of the hymn, that insight, is a blessing. It's as if Paul's saying, hey, just think about it. Isn't it lovely? I'm off. And you, if you read through, there's a, there's a great, for those of you who, who seriously do like a bit of reading and would like to get a flavour of the early church, there's a book called Early Christian Writings in the Penguin Classics series. And it, um, Early Christian Writings in the Penguin Classics. It's in a paperback. And in it, you've got Lots of the letters of the bishops and, and apostles from just after the time of Jesus. You'll see there where the Corinthian church, despite Paul's letters, still went off the rails. You'll see other things like that. But what you will see is people desiring to go to heaven. And they said, the best way I can go to heaven is to die as a martyr, as a witness for Christ. And Bishop Ignatius, he was one. He was just great. He said, I, he said, I can't wait to die so I can be a witness to others to this wonderful gospel. And they say, well, we, we don't want you to go. No, no, he says, I want to die. I want to, I, uh, you think, how balmy. He must be nuts. Actually, he was on his way home. And he didn't want to be trammeled by all the clutter. Now, I'm not suggesting there's a death wish there. There's, there's, actually, there's actually a promotion to glory wish, if you wanted to, pre as um, uh, the Salvation Army put it. So isn't that lovely, that thought? Well, there is the song. And it finishes with this picture of, the, of Jesus being Lord and, and the whole of the created order recognizing it. And so I wondered how I could sort of just evoke that before we move into discussion. So here's the, the vision of that song. Let's go back to it. Uh, Philippians 2, page 1179 is the quick way back. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, verse 10, that in the name of Jesus every knee should kneel in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's how the song ends. Well, so I thought to myself, how, how to do it? And I thought, well, actually, here's, I'll, I'll offer you this as a go. I wanted to think about uh, Handel's Messiah. In Handel's Messiah, it was written um, by a librettist, and it was, a, it was a meditation on the life of Christ, hence the title Messiah. And uh, it, was used, it, it was almost all scripture, apart from some of the links. And in the end of the second part, Jesus has, has been raised, and you have this magnificent chorus, the Hallelujah Chorus. And it was, uh, Handel was commissioned to write it. He, he wrote it in 1741, I think it was. And uh, in 1742, it was first performed, first in Dublin to great acclaim. Then he brought it across to London. And uh, it went not quite so well, which is strange, really. But anyway, that's another story. Um, 
King George II uh, was present, uh, according to some of the, the, the letters of the day. And as it got to the, that, that chorus, um, the Hallelujah Chorus, it so moved him that he stood up in respect of the real King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And you know how Handel builds it. It goes up and up and up. And of course, because the king stands, everybody else stands. And you may, if you've been to Messiah, I, I don't know whether people do it so much today. When you get to the Holy Course, a lot of people stand up as a mark of respect. For those of you who are musicians, uh, it's written in the key of D, D major. And D major is, in Handel's um, writing, was the key he used for light and glory. And it does have that feel, that some keys have different feels. And, and so what you've got is this magnificent chorus. Handel wrote it as an oratorio, and that meant it was performed in places like churches and concert halls. There were some in his day, like every, every generation has them, I suppose, who said, you can't have um, secular opera singers singing sacred music. But actually, Handel did, and some of them still turn their noses up. Um, now, that particular chorus is so well known, it's sung, it's, it's the chorus from Messiah, really, that people know, and you, I don't know, perhaps some of you sung in it. It's, it's a great privilege to be the, able to do that. But to do it in a church, or to do it somewhere in a, a concert hall, a festival hall, or Sutton Coalfield Town Hall, which is a bit small, um, but wherever it is, it actually doesn't capture what Paul has. Paul has the vision of this being sung in a public place where everybody would acknowledge this is what it's about. And I came across this clip on YouTube of a flash mob singing it. And just look at the people round about as they do it. So, shall we run it?
Okay, you're on. But well, I, I think that'd be great to do it. Well, we, 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 yeah, we'll, we'll choose the real singer, shall we? Maybe get Mark. He has choirs, doesn't he? Mark, who plays the piano, Mark Balls. See, anyway, that, that's a lovely idea to do it. But in a public place, just saying, the Lord, he reigns forever and ever. And look at their faces. You know, the good news. So, so that's Paul's hymn. And I think that's something which I would like to suggest we can draw from that one song, that one hymn. And uh, now is the time for you to um, express your thoughts about how to respond to that. The, um, oops. There are five questions. Please choose any one which particularly interests you. And if we, if we break into groups and then we'll get back in about just after about 15, 20 minutes and then we'll just have one or two comments. Thank you, Lord. So, please do uh, join your groups. Please create your friendly group. <laughs> so, in these uh, last uh, few minutes, any um, comments or questions that have been stimulated by any, any part of the evening? because it's a hymn we talked that sorry <laughs> well if you see a poem because the words are condensed a poem or a verse the words are condensed and they usually are more, they stand out more and they're more um you remember them more so i think in number one what extra meaning is conveyed because it's a hymn is because of the format mm. and it stands out more than if it was in prose Really, that's all. That's what yeah. you know. Yeah. Anybody else want to say something? <laughs> Give it back to you. Mm, thank you. <laughs> You're free now. <laughs> I'm sorry. Naomi, I'm on my way. I think I should get a runner. Who would like to just hold your hand there? <laughs> um, I think we kind of talked about this, the first one as well. Um, within like a music group, a, a worship group at church, um, that can be quite interesting to think about what the songs that we choose to sing the whole choice, the wealth of songs that you have over the course of a month or the course of a year, what do they teach us as a congregation? Because the songs that we sing with the music, they really help us to retain those truths. And there might be some people who can't stay for the sermon because of young kids or um, because they're helping out in various different guises. Um, or perhaps listening to a sermon isn't really their thing. And um, sometimes 
it might only be the words of the songs that we retain um, over the course of the week. And are we getting the full picture of the gospel and the full um, story of who God is and what he thinks of us and what he's done for us and what he's, you know, that he's still reigning? Are we um, um, telling that to each other through the songs that we choose? And have we got a good balance of songs over the course of uh, of a month? Um, uh, that's been discussed with, in other groups that I've been in, and I think it's quite an interesting one to to think about. Maybe. Mm. Thank you for starting that hair. Uh, <laughs> Charles Wesley said that was how the Wesley brothers encouraged new Christians to learn the truths of the faith was to to give them songs with substance which were grand to sing and move the heart and also taught the mind. So I think there's something in that. I used to, some of you know, I used to teach New Testament uh, and when I was lecturing in this, we did um, a session with some students on this and I said, is anybody here who's a composer would like to compose a tune to it? And the next week this girl came back with the guitar and played her version of uh, the Philippian hymn. It was great. It just stood the test of the time for that moment. It wasn't necessarily going to be a standard classic but it was lovely to see somebody having a go really um, and it was interesting that when I was looking at that bit of the big the um, Jesus being involved in creation that him the is it uh, he was there at the beginning um, you know we I think we had it on Sunday actually yes what's, what's the which what is it Hallelujah, our God reigns, isn't it? No, I think it's a beautiful name, isn't it? Oh, yes, yeah. Yes, yeah. So anyway, yeah, that came to mind. So everything that helps us, it's like an extra input, isn't it? A reminder. Okay, thank you. No, thank you. And when the new rector arrives, I think there are a number of things which probably we can say, how might we address these and see whatever they who arrive, think, and, and together we might come to do something like that. More, it's not just the hymns, actually. I think it is, it's the breadth of Christian teaching. So it may be that we haven't done anything on death very much lately, or sin very much, or whatever it might be. So thank you. Yeah. Okay, other thoughts? Thank you. This is this is not uh, specifically one of the questions, but it was the the thought that went through my mind. When my husband was dying, he didn't want to be prayed for to be healed. He said he wanted to be prayed that the Lord's will would be done, mm. because if he died, it was a win-win situation. If he recovered, it was a win-win situation. Mm. Yes. Hmm? People tell you I've died, he said. Don't believe them, I've just changed the dress. <laughs> <laughs> Did you hear that? Do I just say it again with the mic? I know you... Ah, you, you, on, you don't have to sing it unless you'd like to. Uh, go on, you can sing I have it. to say that 
I feel closer to God singing some of the things I do sing than that beautiful name we sang on Sunday. I've, I've got the words on my phone because it's so lovely mm. and it lifts you to heaven. Mm. The worship's so important. But sorry, what I was saying was that Billy Graham, who's recently died, said, if someone tells you that I have died, don't believe them. I have just changed address. Mm. Oh, I thought that was lovely. Mm. Thank you. Is that okay for now? Yeah, all right. Well, thank you. What I suggest we do, uh, you might have, um, if we just have a moment or two of quiet, uh, there may be something that has struck you and, and you just like to, you might have said, Lord, please help me not to forget it. Um, just to pray that in, and then uh, we'll close. So just a moment or two, and then I'll draw to a close. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you emptied yourself and came to earth and died on the cross for us. You saw our complicated lives and opened a new way. Now we thank you, Lord, that you reign and are engaged in keeping this world sustained, but also in the gospel of the good news being spread through the places where we live. And we pray for ourselves, Lord, that we will see you as the Lord of all, that the whole of the world is your back garden, that the whole of Aldridge is yours that you will show us how we might both witness to that and be means of blessing to those outside church circles. We pray this in your name. Amen. So let's pray the grace for each other. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and may the Holy Spirit is all evermore. Amen. And here's a taster for next time, which is the last uh, on John. Um, the Logos takes chaos and transforms it into cosmos. Sorry about that. See you next week.